morning. Set myself up. Uh, if you'd like to find Ephesians chapter 1 again in your Bibles, it's on page 1173. So it's che- Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 11 to 14. So, uh, what's the point of being a Christian? What is uh, being a Christian all about? Well, imagine a new company had just started up in your town and they were looking for new employees. So you decided to go along for an interview and when you arrived, everybody was so nice. They gave you a cup of coffee, they sat you down, they told you about the salary, which was excellent. They told you about the subsidised canteen and the food was brilliant. They told you about the staff social club. And then they asked a little about yourself, and you told them a little bit about what you'd done, and you were feeling quite pleased with yourself because you felt, you know, everybody was so nice, and everybody was so welcoming, and it all seemed to have gone very well. But then it came time for you to ask questions. So you asked, well, what is this job all about? What do I have to do? And they said, oh, no, you don't have to do anything. There's no work. We just want you to enjoy all these benefits that this company gives you. We want you to make friends and be happy here. And, and when you leave, there'll be a pension, a wonderful pension scheme for you as well. So a bit take it back. You ask them, well, what's, what's the point of this organization then? What's the point of it? And they say, but we just, there's no point. We just want to employ as many people as possible and for everyone to be happy. Now that, of course, would be completely ridiculous, wouldn't it? But actually, sometimes... Isn't that how we view the Christian life? It's about us, our blessing, our happiness, our inheritance. And in a way, of course, that's all true. The blessings for a Christian are numerous. And Ephesians chapter 1 has already spoken of them. It's spoken of our adoption as God's sons through Jesus Christ, our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us all, Paul says. And even here in verses 13 and 14, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit being given to us as a deposit or a down payment which guarantees our inheritance in Christ until the time when Christ comes to redeem and take possession of his people once again. So the riches of Christ that we enjoy are breathtaking in their generosity to us. But no, the Christian life is not all about our happiness and our inheritance. Paul wants us here to know that there is far more to life than that. Because what we learn from these verses we have in front of us is we are chosen to be God's possession to the praise of his glory. And those are my three points. We are chosen to be God's possession to the praise of his glory. So let's look at the first part of this sentence in more detail. We are chosen You were promised last week a sermon on predestination. And here it comes. (laughs) Inevitably, it will be frustrating because in 20 minutes, you can't cover a subject like predestination. But look down at verse 4. It says, We were chosen since before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. You see, I don't think we were consulted beforehand. We were simply chosen before the creation of the world. 
And we've been chosen not by somebody who is likely to change their mind or be uh, frustrated by difficult circumstances. No, we've been chosen by him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There's no maybe or chance or probability here, no ifs or buts. God works out everything so that it conforms to his will. Everything. Now, this very idea has been uh, one of the most controversial in Christianity uh, ever since uh, the writings of Paul and later on Augustine and later on John Calvin throughout history. So why is predestination or God choosing us so necessary? Well, firstly, we have to be chosen because left to our own devices, the sad truth is that we would never choose God. See, people dislike the idea of predestination because they don't want to be thought of as some kind of puppet with the strings being pulled by God. They say, what about my own free will? But that's the point, isn't it? Nowhere does the Bible say that fallen human beings have any freedom. Why not? Well, Paul will come to it in chapter 2, where he writes, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. John 8, in chapter 34 says, and verse 34 says, Uh, We are slaves, slaves to sin. So yes, we do do what we want to do. But we do not and never have experienced free will. Somebody put it like this. We're incapable of believing the gospel because we are hell-bent on suppressing the truth about God, quoting Romans 1. See, it doesn't deny that we are able to do what we want to do. But what we want to do is to sin, not to submit to Christ. Our wills, if you like, are enslaved. By ourselves, we would never choose God. Our only hope is for him to choose us. In short, predestination is a doctrine of grace. Romans chapter 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here in verse 4, we've already read, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Predestination is free, undeserved grace to us. Secondly, therefore, if we are chosen since before the creation of the world, there can be no hint of any personal pride. You see, we're not chosen because we're particularly good or because we're exceptionally gifted and therefore useful in God's church or even because we've undergone any particular kind of religious ceremony. No, we were chosen for the simple reason that we were in accordance with his pleasure and will. Where then is boasting, Paul asks elsewhere, it is excluded because we've not been justified by law or by our own works but simply by the grace of God. And finally, being chosen by God also means that we can be secure in our faith. Essentially, if salvation were our own work, entirely our own work, we might live in fear of losing it one day or giving up on our work of salvation. But in actual fact, the whole process belongs to God. 
Spurgeon, uh, that 19th century preacher, tried to illustrate it like this. He talked about chain ferries, and you probably know if you lived in Norfolk for a while that the chain ferry at Reedham. And obviously, as you know, the, chain, the ferry is pulled across the river by a chain connected to the bank on the far side. And behind the ferry, it tows another chain which goes slack in the water. And you, you can't see it, but it's used for pulling the ferry back again in the opposite direction. So Spurgeon said that as the ferry is loaded and untied from the, dang, from the bank, at first you cannot see this chain which is lying slack in the water. But eventually it's going to pull you across. And then at a, given no, at a given moment, the tension is taken up and it starts to emerge out of the muddy waters of the River Yare. That chain is, if you like, called your calling. As you look at the chain, you realise it is attached to the leading edge of your boat. And that is your election. You are firmly tied to your calling. You realise that you have been chosen by God. And as the slack is taken up even more, the, the whole of the chain emerges from the water and you can see the far end is tied to the far bank. And that is your destination, glory. The chain, which is your calling, tied to the boat, which is your election, will take you to your destination inevitably and securely. Persian comments, if I be called, I must have been elected. And I need not doubt that. God never tantalised a person by calling them by grace effectually unless he had written that person's name in the Lamb's Book of Life. So predestination is necessary because people who are dead in their sins, who are enslaved to sin, cannot rescue themselves. And because it prevents us from boasting and because it gives us an assurance that once called, we will reach our eternal destiny. And that is why predestination is such an important Anglican doctrine. Or did I mean evangelical? No, I did mean Anglican. There it is. I forgot to bring my Book of Common Prayer today. But there it is, in the back of Book of Common Prayer, in the 39 articles, Article 17, Predestination and Election. And if you want to read a uh, quick summary of predestination, then Article 17 is probably the best that you can find anywhere. And that's still the unofficial, unchallenged doctrine of the Anglican Church. Archbishop Cranmer, who wrote those articles, concludes that the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. So we need to ask ourselves, don't we, when it comes to thinking about predestination, is it full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort? We need to ask ourselves that. For me, I found it is. If I want anybody in control, I want it to be God and not me. But many say, but isn't this just unfair? Why are some saved and others pass over? But the Bible's answer to that is to simply say the only fair thing for God to do would be to condemn us all. We've all done wrong. We've all fallen short of God's standards. Justice demands that we are all condemned. And therefore, it's sobering and humbling to reflect that God in his grace does indeed choose some to be his people. But we should never, therefore, allow ourselves to use this doctrine negatively to preach condemnation on certain individuals. Because as we know, God in his wisdom doesn't make it clear. He never reveals who is chosen. 
and we're not meant to know. John Calvin, often seen as the big baddie or predestination in, in, in church history, the one who, uh, who, who, who writes extensively about it. But John Calvin himself said, we should always exercise a judgment of charity. And Cranmer says that Holy Spirit works in due season. So we never know if and when somebody might be converted. We have to leave it to the Holy Spirit. Another objection would be, if God chooses, then where's my personal responsibility? How can I be held accountable one way or the other? What's the point of investigating faith and taking decisions if in the end it's all down to God? We've, already, we've seen, haven't we, that we are chosen by God in Christ, we are included by God in Christ, verse 13. We are marked or sealed by God in Christ, verse 13. God does all of this to us, so, so what's the point in us doing anything? That's the sovereign will of God in action, we see that. But notice also here in verse 11, Paul says we. We were the first to hope in Christ. They put their hope in Christ. Again, look at verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And in verse 14, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You see, they put their hope in Christ, they heard the word of truth, and they believed in it. Here, in other words, is the other side of the coin. Here is the human response and the human responsibility. When Zacchaeus, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, was called out of his tree, he had to come down and welcome Jesus into his house. He heard the words of Jesus and he believed. The crowd, listening to Peter on the day of Pentecost, had to put their hope in Christ, hear the word and believe. Saul, on the road to Damascus, blinded by that bright light, confused by the words spoken to him out of the light, had to put his hope in Christ, hear the words that were spoken to him by that man called Ananias, and he had to believe. If we don't respond, if we don't seek understanding, if we don't put that hope in Christ, we are responsible for that failure. If, however, we do respond, then we know that we have been chosen. Imagine you've been booked into a hotel by a tour party or by the business you work for. You turn up at the front entrance, but something makes you hesitate. Shall I go in or not? There are lamps in the window and a fire in the grate, and and it all looks very warm and cosy. And so you make up your mind, okay, I'm going to go in. Let's go through those big glass doors. And as soon as you do, you walk towards the desk, and the person, the receptionist, looks up at you, calls you by name, and says, ah, Mr. Huddleston, we've been expecting you. That's what good hotels do, isn't it? To put it more simply, you see a door which the sign, with a sign says, come on in. You go through. And immediately on the other side, you see another sign which says, we knew you would come. The foresight is God's. The responsibility is ours. Therefore, by the way, as as Christians, if we have responsibility for ourselves, we also have responsibility for others. And we have responsibility to encourage as many others towards that door and through that door as we can. In fact, we become co-workers with the Holy Spirit in bringing people to Christ. You see, election, predestination and personal responsibility, the Bible plainly teaches them all. We may struggle with our finite minds are to, put our, to reconcile them all, put them all together. 
but we put our trust in God. And after all that, a bit on predestination, perhaps we still haven't got much closer to answering our question. So what is this Christian life all about? We come to our second point. We are chosen to be God's possession. You see, we need to realise that this word chosen has a deeper meaning than simply being picked out. Rather, its meaning is that we have been acquired by God. We have become his inheritance. We have become his portion. We have been claimed as God's own possession. In fact, you might notice that Paul says we here in verse 11. And in verse 13, he starts talking about you. The we in verse 11 are those who were first to put their hope in Christ. In other words, the Jewish Christian believers. You see, being chosen was nothing new to them. They'd been the chosen, they, they were from the chosen nation of Israel. They were God's people, and he was their God. That was obvious to them. Uh, it all started or began with Abraham many thousand years before. In fact, it was so obvious to them that it, it was so difficult for them to then go out and communicate the gospel to Gentiles, to the Gentiles. They un- and they only took it out reluctantly at first. They could scarcely believe that fulfillment of God's promises to Israel would eventually be fulfilled by embracing all these outsiders, all these Gentiles from outside. See, they were still struggling to come to terms with the vision that, that Peter had. Do you remember as he was praying on the, on the roof of his house in, in Acts 17 and he saw the sheet come down with all these unclean animals and he was told to eat? And that eventually persuaded him to go and see the household of the Roman centurion, Cornelius. But as Paul got to work later on, it became obvious that Gentile believers would quickly outnumber the Jewish believers. And in fact, this letter to the Ephesians is written to churches that are, that are almost entirely Gentile. But it still seemed incredible to those early Jewish believers that the Gentiles should now be included within the people of God which is why there's such a note of joy and triumph in verse 13, where Paul says, and you also, you Gentiles also, were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. See, and having believed, they were marked. They were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, just as in the ancient world, a scroll would be marked with the seal of its owner. So receiving the Holy Spirit should be as effective a sign of his ownership as receiving circumcision. It was an outward sign of belonging to the Jewish race. No, there's nothing external, no painful operation to show that we belong to God, but there's something much more important, and that's our character. Because our election, if we have been chosen, cannot remain a secret, as our character is transformed by the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon again, he put it like this. God has not published the page whereon the actual names of the redeemed are written, but that page of the sacred decree whereon their character is recorded is published in his word and shall be reclaimed to you this day. You see, here in this word, we see the character of God and we see the character that should be formed in ourselves. Is your character being conformed to God's word by the Holy Spirit? Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control? As Paul writes in Galatians, when he lists those fruits of the Spirit, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
You see, the reality that we are God's possession. We are God's possession. It can have a truly powerful impact on our daily lives. See, it delivers us from this overemphasis that we have sometimes on how much we have received from God. Although we have received many, many things. It can save us from focusing on what we can get out of being a Christian. Although with the Holy Spirit we have been given a deposit, a down payment towards the inheritance of eternal glory. And it can cause us to realise soberly, humbly, that we do belong to God. And if that's true, then our minds, our desires, our bodies, every part of our being must be conformed to God's character and they must be invested wisely in order to amass, to build up the greatest possible inheritance for God. So finally, the final point is the Christian life is all for the glory of God. We are chosen to be God's possession to the praise of his glory. Do you see the refrain that comes throughout Ephesians chapter 1? What is the Christian life all about? Well, at the beginning of verse 6, we see at the beginning we are adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. And at the end of verse 12, we are chosen for the praise of his glory. And at the end of verse 14, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. Right now, we look around us and the world seems fairly chaotic. We see human rebellion everywhere. And that causes many of us to doubt whether God actually exists. But let me remind you of God's grand design, which is the key to understanding this whole book of Ephesians. It's there in verses 9 to 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. To bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, that is Jesus Christ. So you see, that's the purpose of the company that we join. That's in addition to all those many benefits of signing up. They will make us happy, but there is also a job to be done. There's also an objective to fulfill, and that is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. See, eventually there will be no doubt as to who is in control. And all the praise and the glory will go to him. Just one final thought. Does that perhaps worry you? Does it worry you that everything God does is ultimately for his own glory? Does it conjure up some kind of image of God as a kind of Bond villain sitting there plotting with a white cat on his lap? Well, it shouldn't do. Because God isn't like us. Whereas human beings like you and I might look after our own self-will, might look after our own well-being, um, ultimately at the expense of other people. God has determined to glorify himself by blessing all of us. He wills to display his resources of mercy in bringing his saints, you and I, to their ultimate happiness in the enjoyment of himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you this morning for the purpose that has been given to us. We thank you for 
your desire and your will, your grand plan to bring all things under Christ. And Lord, we pray that we may submit to you and allow your Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives so that when people see us, they don't see me or the other people here, but they see you at work in us. Amen.